The events in Acts chapter 23 remind me of the day in 1975 when baseball great Henry Aaron came to Atlanta wearing a Milwaukee Brewers uniform. It was a shock. For the previous 21 seasons, Hammer and Hank had been the pride of the Atlanta Braves. The face of the franchise, the all-time home run king, was a Brave, not a Brewer. But there he was, number 44, sitting in the visitor's dugout. And for every longtime Braves fan like myself, we all felt just a twinge of betrayal. Hammer and Hank had stabbed us in the back. He was a brewer, no less. Hank Aaron had changed teams, as had the Apostle Paul. You see, there were Jews who had studied with Paul in Jerusalem. Together with him, they had offered sacrifices before God. They had been with him as he supervised Stephen's stoning. Now they must have felt betrayed to see their former hero on the other team. A once devoted Jew was now a Jesus follower. He was even offering salvation to Gentiles. These Jews seethed over Paul's conversion. And when they saw him in the temple, the crowd mobbed him and they began to beat him up. In fact, if a Roman garrison hadn't been dispatched, the Jews would have killed him. As Acts chapter 21 closes, Paul is on the steps of the police headquarters there in the temple. The mob wants to stone him. There's such bedlam that the chief of police can't even reconstruct what's happened. That's when Paul starts to preach. Remember, his goal for the last 20 years has been to preach the gospel of Jesus to his Jewish peers. But never in his wildest dreams did he think it would be like this in front of an angry mob. But of course, who's to argue with God's methods? Paul stays fixated on the opportunity. In chapter 22, Paul shares his testimony, and the crowd listens intently. That is, until Paul speaks the word Gentiles. That's what sets off another angry firestorm. The Roman in charge wanted to know why these Jews were so hostile toward Paul. So the captain decided that a more formal proceeding was in order, which brings us to chapter 23. Let's actually begin a little bit before that, Acts chapter 22, verse 30. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their counsel to appear. Now, this council was the Sanhedrin. This was the Jewish Supreme Court. Remember, this was the same body that had condemned Jesus to death. Now they get subpoenaed in the trial of the Apostle Paul. And this Roman brought Paul down and set him before them. Now, then Paul, looking earnestly at the council. And what a moment this was. The last time Paul had eyeballed these men, he was on their side. He was on their team. He was their heavy hitter, no less. He was their hit man. Now he's in the opposing dugout. And look at how he opens. He's brimming with courage. He says, men and brethren. 
Normally, a defendant would never address the Sanhedrin as men and brethren, only as rulers of the people. For someone to call them men and brethren was to put himself on their level. And yet that's how Paul viewed himself as peers. He had been one of them. But you can be certain his language angered them even further. As did his next comment. Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. The Jews probably ripped their clothes at those words. They would have considered such a claim to be blasphemous. Without any understanding of the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus, any talk of a good conscience was arrogant at best, heretical at worst. How dare Paul claim to be right with a holy God? In fact, the high priest orders one of his cronies to cold cock Paul. Verse 2. Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. They wanted to slap his little mouth for saying such a thing. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law. And do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? (laughs) Wow, Paul strikes back. He counterpunches the high priest. And in my opinion here, just my opinion, I think Paul may have lost his cool a bit. Remember, his goal was to preach the gospel to the Jews, starting out by calling the high priest a whitewashed wall, a hypocrite, was probably not the best introduction to an evangelistic message. Apparently, even Paul lost control at times. Here he gets angry at Ananias' duplicity and harshness and unfairness. Verse 4, and those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I do not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And here Paul quotes Exodus chapter 22, verse 28. And I think his rebuttal can be taken in a couple of ways. He could have been speaking sarcastically. Oh, I didn't know a guy like that could be a high priest. Paul could have been referring to Ananias' poor priestly record. This man was a miserable high priest, by the way. He served in the post for 12 years, and he used his temple oversight to do nothing but pad his own pockets. He got rich. He was eventually murdered by the Jews. Or Paul might not have actually seen that it was the high priest to whom he spoke. We talked earlier about Paul's eye problems. They were a constant plague on Paul. His inflammation may have flared up again and impaired his vision. He may not have even seen that it was the high priest, literally. Whatever the reason, Paul realizes that he's dug himself a hole here. And he looks for a way out of the jam, we're told. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, He cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Verse 8, for Sadducees say there is no resurrection. 
And of course, that's why they're sad, you see. (laughs) And no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confessed both. At the time, there were two main priestly parties in Judaism. There were the Pharisees and there were the Sadducees. And Paul here shrewdly diverts attention off himself by pitting these two factions against one another theologically. Now, the Sadducees were the liberals. They were the materialists. They denied the existence of angels and the immortality of the soul and the resurrection of the body. In fact, they believed that only the first five books of Moses were inspired. They discounted or diminished the rest of the Old Testament. Whereas the Pharisees, they were the supernaturalists. They believed in angels, and they believed in eternal life, and they believed in the resurrection of the body. They also held that the whole Bible was inspired by God, the whole Old Testament, the law, the poets, and the prophets. And Paul knew that these two groups were fierce rivals. Thus, he appeals to Pharisaical pride. All the Jews were angry that Paul preached that Jesus had risen from the dead. But here Paul reminds the Pharisees that they too believe in the resurrection of the body. In a sense, Paul is on their side. He cleverly reframes his trial as an attack on Phariseeism. Well, then there arose a loud outcry. And the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. That's amazing. In a roundabout way, the doctrine he taught actually substantiated the Pharisees. And so all of a sudden, they back off Paul. All of a sudden, he's their friend. But a heated debate arises with the Sadducees. For now, when there arose a great dissension... The commander, again the Roman commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them. Can you imagine both groups on both sides with his arms pulling as a tug of war with Paul in the middle? Fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. The commander was afraid that Paul was about to become a pulley bone. They were going to pull him in two, tear him in two. So again, he dispatches dispatches a garrison to rescue Paul. And imagine Paul's discouragement over all this. Three times now, he has tried to preach the gospel to the Jews, his people, but with very little success. I would imagine he had sunk into a funk, but... The God of all comfort comes to him in verse 11. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And I'm sure that Paul had considered his trip to Jerusalem a failure. I'll bet he wondered, maybe I should have heeded all those warnings that they were giving me and stayed away from Jerusalem. But that wasn't God's opinion. God commends Paul's efforts. Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified of me in Jerusalem. God speaks of Paul's witness to the Jews in a positive light. 
You know, let's always remember our responsibility is to simply share the gospel. How folks respond is between them and God, not us. Now, recall last week we discussed whether Paul was right or wrong to visit Jerusalem at this particular time. God had called Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And everywhere Paul preached to Gentiles, he saw positive results. People got saved. But whenever he tried to preach to the Jews, he got jailed or even worse. Prior to this visit to Jerusalem, believers and prophets alike had warned Paul of danger ahead. When he arrived, James suggested he perform a ritualistic vow to sort of court the Jewish sympathies. The effort failed, though. Paul's visit to Jerusalem got him into trouble. And we might call it a mistake. We could conclude that this trip was born out of Paul's stubbornness, not God's will. But not so fast. You remember earlier in Acts chapter 19, verse 21, we're told that Paul purposed in the Spirit, that is, in the Holy Spirit, to go to Jerusalem. He said in chapter 20 that none of these warnings moved him. That he was ready not only to be chained, but to die for Jesus' sake in Jerusalem. You remember in Romans chapter 9, verse 3, Paul said that he would even be willing to go to hell if it meant that the Jews could go to heaven. You know, I'm not sure I could honestly say that about anyone. How do you say a man with this kind of passion, this kind of passion for the lost, is outside the will of God. In fact, review Paul's calling at the time of his conversion. Remember, Jesus said that Paul would bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's, my name's sake. Let, let's not fall into the trap of thinking that because you're suffering, you're outside the will of God. We should know that favorable results aren't always an indicator we're walking in God's will. And so here's the answer to the question. Was it God's will for Paul to visit Jerusalem and enter the temple at this particular time? Here's the answer. I have no idea. Who knows? Here's a classic case where the will of God seems as clear as mud. You know, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you realize when it comes to these kinds of subjective decisions, discerning God's will isn't always an exact science, is it? What college do I attend? Who do I marry? What job do I take? Where do I buy a house? Do I go to Jerusalem? Do I join with other Jews in taking this vow? I mean, you can't open your Bible and get a definitive answer on these sort of questions. So how do you discern God's will? Well, as Paul did, you listen to your heart. You stay open to advice from friends, Christian friends. You lean toward the promptings of the Holy Spirit. But what if you're still unclear? See, here's what I want you to realize tonight about God and his will. God is experienced in working with frail, infallible people. Sometimes I have a difficult time discerning my wife's desires, and there's no communication problems there. We can text. We can even talk. How much more difficult, though, is it for me to pick up on the spiritual nuances and the dealings and instructions of the Holy Spirit? It can be very difficult at times. 
And you see, God understands our dilemma. He knows how dense we are. That's why he includes some latitude in his will. I think there's a plus or minus margin of error. I really do. Walking in God's will seldom requires me to stop on a dime. I don't have to hit the bullseye from a thousand feet. I think God makes allowances for our humanness. Let me say that again. I think God makes allowances for our humanness. In Psalm 18, verse 36, this is what David meant when he prayed. You enlarged my path under me so that my feet did not slip. I love that. He not only directed David's feet, but he enlarged the path under him just in case he slipped. He was saying, as long as your heart is right, God will make sure that your feet stay on the path. And when you slip, God enlarges the path under you to catch you. See, even if we get out of step, even if we veer a bit to the left or to the right, God doesn't abandon us. He wants us to walk in his will. And he even stretches out the white lines beneath us to keep us in his will. He enlarges the lane at times to keep us moving in the right direction. He doesn't let us slide off into the ditch. Here God may have widened his will to accommodate Paul's zeal for the Jews. I believe God loves us. And he won't let us forfeit the blessings of his will just because we miss out on a small cue or there's a little play in the steering wheel of our lives. God is big enough to accommodate his children's weaknesses. Here's my point. Did Paul do everything right? I doubt it. But in the end, God got him to where he wanted him to go. And will you do everything right? Probably not. But God is big enough to get you where he wants you to go when the time comes. God fulfilled his will for Paul, and he'll fulfill his will in your life if your heart is right and if you trust in him. Well, verse 12. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Can you imagine? That's some hostility. Now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. These guys harbor some serious animus toward Paul. They go on a kill the Christian weight loss diet. No matzo balls. No falafels. Man, not even a lamb chop or two until Paul is dead meat. Forty men take this oath. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near. These hungry assassins, they conspire with the chief priest to set up an ambush. And so when Paul's sister's son... Heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Now, apparently, Uncle Paul had a nephew. And he was within earshot of the conspirators. 
What do you think the odds were of this nephew just happening to walk past these Jewish thugs just as they were devising their plot to assassinate Paul? What do you think the chances of that were just happening by chance? Not very good. Obviously, God's providence is at work. God is, God's will is at work in Paul's life. He's protecting Paul. God performs a miracle here. He makes sure that the right boy is in the right place at just the right time to hear this important information. Well, then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. And so he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you've revealed these things to me. And he called for two centurions, saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night, which was around 9 p.m. They're going to move Paul just after it turns dark, and he's going to travel with a heavily armed military detachment. They're not going to allow Paul to get assassinated in route to Caesarea. And provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. I suppose we don't know who our governor is tonight, but (laughs) they knew that Felix was their governor. Had to throw that in, I'm sorry. Just had to. We're going to talk more about this Roman procurator, Governor Felix, in chapter 24. Remember, though, where they're going. They're going to Caesarea. Caesarea by the sea was the Roman headquarters in Israel. The governor came to Jerusalem only on special occasions. Oh, he preferred life on the coast. And that's why for Paul to be tried before Felix, he had to be transported from Jerusalem to Caesarea which would have put him at risk of ambush. The Roman commander knows that Paul is a high-value target for these terrorists, especially now that he has this information from Paul's nephew. And so he puts together a military detail to transport him the 65 miles from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And along with the prisoner, he sends to Felix a letter, verse 25. He wrote a letter in the following manner, Claudius Lysias To the most excellent governor, Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason, they accused him. I brought him before the council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you, 
and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. And he closes, farewell. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. Antipatris was the halfway marker from Jerusalem to Caesarea. The road from Mount Zion in Jerusalem down to Antipatris was narrow and it was mountainous. It was perfect for an ambush. But the road north of Antipatris towards Caesarea was flat and open. That means that when they got to Antipatris, the dangerous part of the journey was over. And thus, the next day, the foot soldiers and the spearmen, they left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. The infantry troops returned to Jerusalem while the cavalry finished Paul's escort to Caesarea. Verse 33. And when they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Paul occupied a cell in Herod's palace there in Caesarea. <clears throat> Verse 24, uh, chapter Chapter 24. Now, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders. Notice, even though Caesarea was north of Jerusalem, we're told that the high priest's entourage came down to Caesarea. Why is that? Jerusalem is high up in the mountains. It's the highest elevation there in Israel below Mount Hermon. And thus, to go anywhere from Jerusalem you always descend or you go down. At the time, the high priest Ananias was 80 years old. That he, an 80-year-old man, was willing to make a 65-mile trip over rugged terrain is proof of just how much he hated Paul and he wanted to go and condemn him before Felix. And coming with Ananias was a certain orator named Tertullus. Tertullus was a professional orator, probably the equivalent of an expensive trial lawyer today. He was a silver-tongued politician, you could say. An ambulance chaser that could talk. Once the Stanford Research Institute, they tested how various professions affected a person's perspective. The first interviewee was an engineer. He was asked, what does two plus two make? Being trained in the exactness of mathematics, the engineer responded, well, in absolute terms, four. Well, the second interviewee was an architect. He was asked, what does two plus two make? Due to the creativeness of an architect's craft, his reply was more elaborate. He said, well, there are several possibilities here. Two plus two makes four, and so does three plus one, and so does two and a half plus one and a half. Well, the final interview, interviewee was a lawyer. The researcher asked him, he says, what does two plus two make? The attorney gets up, he walks over, he closes the door, pulls down the blinds. He leans into the researchers and he whispers, 
Well, you tell me. What would you like for it to make? (laughs) Sad to say, lawyers have a reputation for bending the truth. And such was the case with this guy, Tertullus. Tertullus was skilled in rhetoric, a master of verbal deception. He was a high-priced lawyer brought in by the high priest in the Sanhedrin to send Paul up the river. Tertullus could flatter a judge. He could obscure the facts, buddy. He could dress up a lie. He was slick and shrewd. He was a real truth bender. You know, it's been said, the American judicial system doesn't determine innocence and guilt, but who has the best lawyer? True. Tertullus was hired to present the priest's case. Thus, these gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. And here is where you need to grab the reach into the pocket on the back of the seat in front of you and pull out your air sickness bag right here, right now. This is nauseous. This one, I read this, I want to puke. Tertullus claims that Governor Felix has brought peace and prosperity to all of Judea. He flatters him. He praises him. You know, to the contrary, this Roman governor was corrupt to the core, and he had been brutal to the Jews. Marcus Antonius Felix was the only Roman procurator to ever rise to his position from the ranks of a slave. But though he climbed in status, Felix remained the same in stature. He was a brutish man. He never really advanced among the heart of a slave, the culture of a slave. Tacitus, the Roman historian, says this of Felix. He had the power of a king and the mind of a slave. Felix was anything but what this Tertullus calls him, which was noble. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy. Get the get to the point, man. Get the flattery here, man. This is a silver tongue guy. By your courtesy, a few words from us, from your sponsors. For we have found this man a plague. Literally, he calls Paul a pest. A creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. And a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He makes Paul sound like a gang leader. There's the Bloods and the Crips and the Nazarenes. Now, here's another first century name given to the followers of Jesus. They were sometimes called Nazarenes. And of course, that was after Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. But understand, this was a derogatory term. This had derogatory implications. Since Nazareth was a hick town, sort of a backwoods, off the beaten path kind of place, this was like calling the Christian community rednecks or swamp people, you know. Tertullus begins his case in verse 6. 
Paul even tried to profane the temple and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. The lawyer begins by telling Felix an outrageous lie. Rather than profane the temple protocol, Paul had wanted to placate the Jews by observing a ritual. But the commander, Lysias, came by and with great violence took him out of our hands. That violent guy. I mean, talk about rewriting history. The Romans tried to stop the violence that the Jews were perpetrating. Tertullus paints Lysias as the agitator. It's just the opposite. He goes on to blame this Roman commander, Lysias, for forcing everyone to make this trip to Caesarea. You know, the Jewish leaders, according to Tertullus, the Jewish leaders were handling this situation with Paul. They they could have spared everybody this ordeal of going to Caesarea in this trial if Lysias had just left them alone. By stepping in, though, Lysias had ended up commanding his accusers to come to you. And then he goes on in verse 8. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. You'll see, all that I'm telling you is right. Of course, their account was full of lies. Tertullus was a slimeball liar in action. Well, verse 10. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Paul knew that Felix had been around the block a time or two with these Jews. He knew their ways. He'd been governor over Palestine now for seven years, from 52 to 59 A.D., and Paul is thankful for his longevity. He knows that Felix has some perspective. Because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. Nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. Tertullus had been long on style, but short on substance. The Jews had an argument, but no evidence to back it up. What they had said, what Tertullus had said, was fake news. Now the defense is going to present its case. Paul begins. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers. He worships the Hebrew God, the God of his fathers, according to the way. Notice the Jews at this time considered Christianity a sect or a branch of Judaism. I'm sure that most Jews would have considered it a heretical branch of Judaism, but it was a Jewish sect nonetheless. That's how they saw it. Paul, on the other hand, referred to Christianity not as a sect, but as the way. Jesus wasn't just one sect among many sections a small slice of something bigger. Oh, no. Jesus is the way. He's the only way for man to relate to God. Jesus, as he said, is the way, the truth, and the life. Paul goes on to explain his faith. 
He says, I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Paul says, I believe in the Jewish faith. Paul would not have labeled himself as a former Jew. He would have labeled himself as a fulfilled Jew. Nothing he believed had contradicted the Old Testament or his Hebrew heritage. He believed in the law. He believed in the prophets. His faith in Jesus was a fulfillment of Judaism. You know, Jesus said as much back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. You remember Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Never did Jesus nullify or contradict Judaism. He simply took it a step further. The work of Jesus completed the Old Testament prophecies and imagery. Jesus is the new temple. He's the perpetual priesthood. He's the ultimate sacrifice. He's the author of a better covenant. He's the fulfillment of all the prophets' predictions. And thus, in light of that, there's no longer a need for an old temple or for a Jewish priesthood, or for the sacrifice of bulls and goats, for an old covenant, we now have a new covenant, which is infinitely better. Verse 16, this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. This is how Paul opened his defense earlier, before the Sanhedrin in chapter 23, before he was punched in the mouth, remember. Paul never violated his biblical sensibilities is what he's saying. And he now gives his version of what had happened in the temple, this temple riot that they've talked about. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. And I love how he starts. He says, all I was doing was trying to bring an offering to the temple. That's a good thing. I have a hard time arguing with that. And then these Jews from Asia, they were there, and they saw me, and they stirred all this up. And where are they now? What created the mob were false accusations by these Turkish Jews who had said that Paul brought a Gentile into the temple. Of course, now these Jews were nowhere to be found. They had vanished in the possibility of cross-examination. They could throw around accusations, but they didn't want to be asked any questions themselves. Verse 20. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council, unless it was for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I'm being judged by you this day. And here Tertullus must have figured that he had met his match because Paul is also a shrewd debater. Remember, a good number of the Jewish delegation accusing Paul before Felix were Pharisees who believed in the future resurrection of the body. And here Paul insists that he's being condemned for the same belief held by his accusers, the resurrection of the body. He says this is hypocrisy. 
Of course, the charge against Paul wasn't his belief in the resurrection of all, but the resurrection of one, Jesus of Nazareth. And yet Paul's pretty shrewd here. He frames his case so that it becomes impossible for the Pharisees to condemn him without condemning themselves at the same time. This is how Paul got off the hook in chapter 23 in Jerusalem. And so he tries to go to the well one more time. He's getting good at getting out of these tight squeezes. Verse 22. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. It's interesting that Felix had some prior knowledge of Christianity. We're going to be told later that Felix's wife was Jewish. The information he had may have come from her. In fact, she was a Jew with quite a heritage. She had been a member of royalty. Felix wants to hear from the commander who initially dealt with the disturbance before he makes a final decision. Sadly, there though, there's no record of Lysias ever making it to court. And so Felix commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. And so Paul gets placed under house arrest in Caesarea where he's going to live for the next two years. It's really a pretty good gig. He can entertain friends. He can speak to small groups. He can disciple believers. His fellow Christians can visit him, bring him food and supplies. Rather than a cold, dank prison, God gives Paul a two-year, all-expense-paid stay in the beautiful coastal city of Caesarea. Now think about it. After three long, rigorous missionary journeys, God is supplying Paul a little rest and relaxation. This is Paul's final siesta before his last lap, before him going to Rome. And these two years that Paul spent in Caesarea provided Paul's sidekick, Luke, an opportunity to do the important research and verification that went into Luke's writings. Now remember, Luke was an educated man. He was a doctor and a historian. Now based in Caesarea with Paul, over the next two years, Luke can visit Nazareth and Galilee in Jerusalem, in Bethlehem. Luke can now run down the stories. For the next two years, he has access to the history that he's learned. All over the countryside now, Luke can go, and he can conduct interviews with people who 25 years earlier had seen firsthand the life and the miracles and the teachings of Jesus. Many of these eyewitnesses were still alive. Luke would have been able to speak to Mary and to the shepherds, and to Jesus' brothers, and to Peter, and to John. Imagine Luke sitting down with Nicodemus and learning what they talked about that night. Even officials in Pilate's court. Imagine the interview Luke had with Lazarus. Can you imagine? Luke compiled his research into two volumes. He wrote two letters to a rich sponsor named Theophilus. We call those books Luke and 
Acts. In the opening of Luke's gospel, he refers to Theophilus by the title, Most Excellent. This was a common label given to Roman governmental officials. And it's possible that Luke's gospel and its sequel, the book of Acts, were actually written as part of Paul's legal defense before the Caesar in Rome. This would mean that the two of the New Testament's longest books were actually legal briefs. How about that? Now, to me, all this is a wonderful example of God's undeniable faithfulness. At first, Paul's trip to Jerusalem seemed like a disaster. Yet God used it to give Paul some needed rest and refreshment and to provide the church, even future generations, even you and I, the church's two of its greatest treasures, the book of Luke and the book of Acts. You know, it's proof of the truth Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. You know, here's a provocative thought for you. If Paul hadn't been detained two years in Caesarea, would we even be reading the book of Acts tonight? Which causes me to wonder, could your inconveniences, could the disruptions in your life right now actually be God's way of doing a good thing in and through your life? Well, verse 24. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Felix's wife, Drusilla, was the great-granddaughter of Herod the Great, the Herod who slaughtered the male babies in Bethlehem while trying to kill the baby Jesus. Her great-uncle, Herod Antipas, beheaded John the Baptist and stood trial over Jesus. In Acts chapter 12, Drusilla's father, Herod Agrippa I, had the apostle James beheaded. This was the fellow who let the crowd praise him as God. In fact, he gathered there in the theater in Caesarea, and the crowd praised him as God. And he was judged for his arrogance when worms ate out his bowels and intestines. You remember that story? This was Drusilla's family. She was a Herodian. Drusilla was the Meghan Markle of her day. She was a star in the royal family. Except unlike Meghan, Drusilla was born into the ruling class. She was a Herodian by birth. And over the years, you bet, she had heard and she had seen And she had read a lot about Jesus. Now to have Christianity's leading spokesperson in her palace, what an opportunity. And so she hoped to talk to Paul. She probably had a notebook page full of questions. Felix and his wife were seekers. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now when I have a convenient time. I will call for you. Notice the content of Paul's message to Felix and Drusilla and those assembled. He speaks to these pagans about three topics. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. In other words, 
victory from yesterday's sins, victory over today's temptations, and victory at tomorrow's judgment. What a sermon that must have been. He spoke about righteousness and self-control and judgment to come. I wish Paul's sermon had been recorded and uploaded to YouTube. Wouldn't that be cool? How many internet hits would Paul's sermon have got? I'm sure it would have gone viral. But notice Felix's sad reply. He was afraid and he answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. He delayed making a decision to a more convenient time. Hey, it is never a more convenient time to come to Jesus than right now. You know, statistics show that 82% of all Christians come to Jesus before the age of 19. And do you know why? It's a simple reason. For the more times you say no, the harder it is to ever say yes. You resist the Holy Spirit, and it causes a hardening of the spiritual arteries. And often the effects are irreversible. In a sense, commitment is never convenient, but it's imperative. Verse 25 tells us Felix was afraid. Like a lot of people today, Governor Felix was afraid to relinquish control and to surrender his life to the will of another. He had nothing to fear. God loves him and has a better plan for his life. Felix refused. He waited for a more convenient time, a time that apparently never came. But Felix had an additional motive for putting this off. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Felix never filed formal charges against Paul because he held out hope for a bribe. He was expecting Paul to try and buy his freedom. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. Apparently, Paul and Felix had numerous conversations, yet apparently a more convenient time to get right with God never came, never came up. That's why the most convenient time to commit your life to Jesus is always right now. Don't put it off. Well, the chapter ends. But after two years, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. The Jews wanted Paul to rot in prison. And the new governor was happy to comply. Paul remains under house arrest now for two years until he concludes enough is enough and he forces the hand of the new governor, Festus, to send him to Rome. And that's where we'll pick it up next week.